0: Welcome to the 500 Mile Podcast, back from hiatus. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, we're speaking with author Kyle Buchanan and talking his book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road, which means we are going to be talking about Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Kyle Buchanan also writes for the New York Times. He is their uh, pop culture and awards season columnist as the projectionist. Um, But first up, what I watched this week, I just got out of seeing Top Gun Maverick, which is get, from what I could see was getting great reviews. And sure enough, yes, uh, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie, uh, give them all the monies to make your uh, continually escalating third acts that get crazier and crazier. I know that sounded backhanded, but uh, Christopher McQuarrie is working in rarefied air right now when it comes to blockbusters and spectacle. Uh, I am very much impressed um the one thing i'll say about tom cruise's performance is is i guess the word i'd use is it's exhausting to watch him act now like you can feel him really push and try and um so top gun top gun maverick obviously the original has a ton of commentary about it and this one probably deserves it even only as a sequel the biggest thing, the, the quickest thing I'll say, and leave it, leave the rest of the commentary for another day, is Tom Cruise's movie star, gung ho, can do, uberman successful uh, persona that he puts on screen. The reason I think Top Gun in particular is such a lightning rod for commentary on this is this is all those. Tom Cruise, uh, elements being used for the military industrial complex. So take that as you will. Uh, but the, the, the more interesting pairing I had last week of viewings that set my mind, uh, going, it's gonna sound odd, although they're both partially animated and partially animated was Chippendale's rescue Rangers. And I rewatch Katsuhima Otomo's Akira. Um, First off, Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. It's Akiva Schaefer from Lonely Island, who the Lonely Island guys are great filmmakers, as their sh- SNL shorts showed back in the day. And I was wanting to be a Akiva Schaefer completus along with the Bash Brothers and uh, Pop Star Never Stop Stopping, which I never get that right. I think I got that right. Chippendale's has that. It's going for a Roger Rabbit vibe, and it also has that thing where certain comedians, when they get to a certain age, you can tell they're going to make movies for their kids, which um, is understandable. But the the thing that really threw me about the movie is that almost all the comedy, commentary, or most of the funny stuff were background gags. And the main story itself, with some little bit of variation, had just a lot of Disney formula to it. And the background commentary was all about IP and all the movies being made right now just being, having to be it's based on some kind of existing form of advertisement that you already know. Which sure sounds, is kind of has a subversive thing being put out on Disney Plus. But when you look at filmmakers this talented, it almost feels like the movie gave me this feeling of being, them being trapped. I, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm. That was just. It was the reason Akira comes into it, though, was I've been listening to. You know, we talk comics on here semi consistently. I've been listening to the great comic book YouTube show podcast, Cartoonist Kayfabe, and they've done a few episodes on Otomo's Akira volumes. And Otomo also directed Akira, the movie, on top of writing and drawing the original manga. And. If you've never read the original Kira, it is it is just a testament to human achievement of detail and perfectionism and just an accomplishment of what uh, uh, a single artist can do, of uh, just breathtaking maximalism. And so it made me go back to watch the, the movie, which itself is obviously a filmmaking effort, but it has like they invented colors for this movie. Like there's like, like a few, like 10 or 20 new shades of red that were invented for the movie, for the movie adaptation of Akira. And the two guests on the cartoons, k episode that I listened to was about volume four and volume or volume five and volume six were artists, Frank quietly and Jeff Darrow, who film people might know as he was a conceptual artist for the matrix and uh, the Wachowskis. And, he was telling a story that he worked on the live-action version of Akira and how all these amazing designs and drawings of cities, uh, they wanted him to... He When he worked on the American version of Akira, that live-action that still has not come to fruition, they wanted him to redesign the motorcycle so it could match up with a motorcycle company, the tie-in. And the two together watching him is just... You know, to use the phrase, um, um, I think, I think uh, Aaron Sorkin had this uh, in a Studio 60 episode where uh, art and commerce had always been fighting, but right now it feels like commerce is kicking art's ass. A movie like Chippendale's Rescue Rangers has this feeling of our corporate overlords are not only picking what movies get made, but what movies we get to see. It just feels oppressive. But on to positive things, we will talk about a movie that has master- come through the studio system of a maximalist achievement, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, Kyle Buchanan's book, is a great oral history of. It's both a really fast read, it' fun and comprehensive, but as we will go into the episode some of you might know certain the stories behind it you know charlie charlie's and tom hardy fighting things like that long shoot uh the it is almost heart of darkness level create just the level of 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 the tumult that they went through making this movie so i hope you enjoy this episode So uh, how long have you been off the Oscar stuff for now? Since just right after? Or did you have to do... Was there an aftermath? Or,
1: uh, Yeah, you may have heard of a little uh, Will Smith incident that happened at the Oscars. <laughs> I'm, I'm unfamiliar so, with all
0: of this completely. No?
1: Uh, yeah, it's been two of the longest Oscar seasons ever. Uh, well, two, two, the two longest. Um, and therefore the shortest off-seasons. So it's been a lot, uh, you know, also having written this book during one of those seasons and promoted it during another. So it's been busy. Going to Cannes in a week and a half, obviously very fun. I'm not complaining about it, but I am (laughs) eager for some sort of break. So we'll see.
0: Oscar season sounds like a shit show.
1: Oh, yes, very much so. And, you know, sometimes that's what makes it really fascinating to cover. I'm not in it just for the sort of, statistical precedents and all the other things that I think intrigue certain types of pundits. I'm interested in like what it all means and what entertainment means and blah, blah, blah. So there was no shortage of those things to unpack.
0: And that's a good gateway point into figuring that out. Um, If you're going to Cannes, are you going to see, uh, is 3,000 years of long game playing? Yes, I will be seeing that. Is it it in competition? I forget.
1: It's out of competition. Okay. Do you know anything about it yet or... Uh, A little bit. Yeah. And I know that it's been testing recently and getting wildly mixed test scores, but like, you know, it's a very different sort of movie than anything else that's getting made right now. So we shall see.
0: You know, one of the benefits of um, reading the book, it gave me an excuse to watch George Miller's one of my favorite directors, but at the same time, I will rewatch Road Warrior way too many times and not enough of everything else. So I sat down and watched Baby Pig in the City probably for the first time since it came out on video. Uh. I knew it was an amazing movie. I know it's I know it's amazing, but I just haven't sat down and watched it. And you just, all that on-screen virtuosity, just the ballet of constant motion. This is the hair. It's just, it's such an amazing movie. And once you get later in, into your book where you're, you're talking about the bad um, press i guess around or the bad buzz around fury road right before it was getting released before it started testing i guess or before it started critic screening you just look at the finished product and you're like how the hell can that movie ever have any kind of bad buzz and then you think Babe pig in the city and you're like oh it's a good movie that
1: also it takes them a long time to fine-tune a movie you know so until it snaps into focus it's it's I mean, even the end result doesn't look anything or feel anything like other movies. So stands to reason that as they're still in this sort of messy phase of, you know, an assembly cut, it's even wilder. And the sound and ultimate uh, color scheme, color correction, and those incredibly precise edits are such a key part of it, you know. And they don't come easily.
0: I I guess just because the Mad Max, Fury Road touts the, you know... This movie, I I personally I, I hate the Hitchcock mythology that like you can just sit down and storyboard a perfect movie and you just need all your uh, you know department heads just to, and actors to finish it out, but Fury Road just always struck me as the movie that like does that kind of works with it. So that's why it's it's odd with the editorial process, even with the beginning and ending supposedly not there for half of the editorial process.
1: I mean, it's definitely astounding to go back. And read the storyboarded portions of uh, from very early on, and see how similar they are shot for shot to what made it onto the screen. You know, well over fifteen years later. But there are like crucial things, crucial things about that movie, like Furiosa scream in the desert, that were not part of that. So you know, for as much of a visionary auteur as he is, he's also a very collaborative filmmaker, and he needs those those ideas and the ability to, you know, say yes, no, or run with that and let's see.
0: I guess I want to rewind personally. Uh, Where are you from?
1: Uh, I'm from Newberry Park, California. It's uh, about 45 minutes north of Los Angeles.
0: Okay. Um, What kind of movies were you watching as a kid?
1: Totally mainstream ones. You know, I, I definitely had an interest in how movies were made. I was the sort of kid where... If there was a assignment in English class to turn in a report on a book, I would make like a little video about it instead mm. with my friends. But, you know, I mean, living in uh, suburban Southern California, in the particular town that I lived in, I, I didn't know about really any sorts of other movies other than like, you know, the obvious ones that would get placed in front of a 10-year-old boy. It really wasn't until later that I got to dive into sort of more expansive horizons as far as movies go but then also you know watching the oscars every year and having that sort of portal into totally different movies uh than i was used to was also really exciting and you know sometimes when you're still sort of refining your cinematic palette to be able to see really incredible things like aliens which was the first rated r movie that my mom let me watch or Thunderdome was actually the first Mad Max movie that I saw because it had kids in it. You know, those <laughs> sorts of things. It was, it was really exciting to land in these completely different cinematic vistas than I was used to.
0: Road Warrior was my first radar movie. And I remember my dad's, night. my dad, I was sitting on my dad's lap and he told me we were watching HBO and he said specifically, don't tell your mother you're watching this.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate um, that. Yeah, my mom, you know, I'm trying to uh, get an interview with James Cameron this year. And I feel like the fact that he really was my like rated R movie introduction, because my mom showed me that and Terminator 2, you know, let, let's see if that gets me an edge.
0: James Cameron has that one appearance in the book, too. Yeah, Terminator. yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh you pulled
0: that from some other interview, or if you personally just got him just for the one quote.
1: No, uh, I talked to him at a Comic Con and uh, threw that question in, because, you know, it was right after Fury Road. This is, you know, I interviewed him a few years ago. So prior to the book being written, but, you know, I, I used absolutely everything I'd ever asked anybody, you know, and in the year that Fury Road came out, it was topic of conversation uh, amongst just about everybody, you know, like not just uh, the, in, a, in a very improbable way, Oscar voters, and not just film critics who went to bat for it, but all of Hollywood was talking about it too. And, you know, certainly all the people who were talking about Furiosa and what an incredible character she was, you wanna put her in that pantheon that includes so many James Cameron heroines. So, you know, I knew he would have thoughts.
0: Yeah, I was, I was actually living in, in uh, Saw Fury Road while I was in LA at the time. So, um, did you go to school for journalism? Did you go to film school or what did you? Oh, well,
1: okay. I went to USC and I was originally a, a print journalism major, switched into the film school, but continued to work for the newspaper and uh, for my own webzine and other magazines. So it's really been sort of like a hybrid career because I've been so interested in movies, pop culture, that sort of thing. But also I'm a writer, I can't help but write. Like I can't help but sort of articulate my opinion by writing it down. So to be able to carve out the career that I have where I get to you know, see movies early, decide what we should be covering, try to get a sense for what people are going to respond to and feel is important and sometimes also be able to move the needle in that regard since you know i work for the times is really exciting and you get to interview actors and directors who intrigue you you know some of whom have been around since i've been falling in love with movies and some of whom are newer to the scene and that mix and match keeps things really interesting
0: um, so the the book started out as a 4,000-piece oral history for the Times?
1: 4,000-word piece, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I started it, you know, the, the genesis of it was in spring 2020 when there were, you know, no new films to cover because the pandemic had sort of torn the release calendar asunder. I thought, well, what am I going to write about? And I knew it was about to be the fifth anniversary of Fury Road. And I had heard a lot of the really you know uh, offbeat juicy wild crazy inspiring stories about it in the years since it had come out because they hadn't really those stories had not come out in 2015 when the film was released maybe you could read between the lines maybe you knew people who knew people maybe you could sense that the people who were being interviewed the stars george whomever were sort of talking around what really went down but yeah in the years since i'd heard so much and felt like the right time to, you know, like enough time had passed that maybe people would be a little more willing to speak freely. But then also the film has only become like a more permanent part of the pop culture canon. Like it really grows and grows and grows in esteem with every passing week, month, year to the point where I'm very curious how Furiosa will do, because I think it could have a, a really tremendous box office performance based on all the people who've caught up with Fury Road since it came out. So I, I got about uh, two dozen people, uh, most of the cast, George, and some key behind the scenes players, and did this little, well, it didn't feel mini then, but compared to the <laughs> book, a mini oral history. Um, and 4,000 words, a lot of real estate. But honestly, having spoken to a lot of these people, I knew how many more stories there were. And everyone who worked on Fury Road from, you know, the biggest stars to the uh, less well-known uh, crew members have incredible stories because there just hasn't really ever been a set experience like it. So yeah, uh, with the encouragement of some of my colleagues and uh, my agent, Rick Richter, we went out with a book proposal in very late summer of 2020 and uh, HarperCollins bought it. And I got to work. I started... Calling, Zooming, texting, emailing, you know, everyone I could get my hands on and talked to about 110 more people uh, and went back and interviewed some of them again, like George and Charlize and whomever. So, yeah, also while doing my fairly time consuming day job. So it was a lot, you know, it was that pre vax part of the pandemic where because our lives were so circumscribed, I thought, well, at least I'll have work to distract me. And, and, you know, I, I definitely piled my plate full of work at that time.
0: What is, what is entailed in, I mean, I'm sure you've done a few oral histories, both at Vulture and at the, at the times, but what is entailed in branching that out? Is it just organization principles of just like cutting, pasting, uh, moving off topic to topic? Like, is there anything complex about it or like, is there any, being ar- arduous about it
1: well tracking people down is one thing um you know for the people that i spoke to for the times oral history it was you know all of the actors have publicists who could help facilitate it uh george is you know someone you can get a hold of by calling his production company or emailing and you know same with some of the uh, department heads but how are you going to find a random set PA? How are you going to find, you know, yeah. a guy who wrote on the film in 1999 and isn't credited? You know, how are you going to even find out that some of these people worked on it? You know, yeah. and a, a writer like Kelly Marcel, who writes on a lot of Tom Hardy's.
0: The Kelly Marcel stuff, I was completely unaware yeah. of when I was founding. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, no, she's never spoken about having worked on this movie. She's not credited, you know, Uh, To my mind, I believe no one's ever interviewed her about it because nobody knew that she was there. But she was there for months working on this movie uh, and mediating, you know, (laughs) with her star who was frustrated. So it was a lot of that. It was hunting people down, you know, using Facebook to be like, are you Belinda Johns who used to work for George Miller? No? Okay, sorry. Let me message the next one. You know, that sort of thing, looking for people who were in the special thanks, uh, looking on LinkedIn for anybody who had anything to ever do with Fury Road or Kennedy Miller. And then also, you know, when I had a good rapport with someone asking them, who else do you think I should talk to? Because it, Mm. you know, would not only open up other branches, but also it helps to get somebody's cosign to say, "Okay, I, I can vouch for this guy. Go ahead and talk to him, you know, because that's so
0: like mean, meat potatoes reporting almost too.
1: Oh, very much so. Yeah. You know, especially in those days, because you couldn't leave your house really, you know, I would have loved nothing more than to fly to Australia and look through old boxes and, you know, roam through Kennedy Miller and talk to people, but you couldn't really do that. So you had to figure out other ways to make all those things happen. There's a lot of Zooms, a lot of checking mm-hmm. time zones. You know, I was working my day job for the most part during the day. And then around four or five, you'd start talking to Australians.
0: (sighs) One of the key things that I think is really great about the book, and I've seen this on Twitter magnified, is that it just makes you want to rewatch the movie. Over and over again. I um I watched it again today, and uh I don't know if you're, you you use a letterbox at all, but um I, I checked on mine. It seemed a l- l- lowball because it says I've only seen this movie eight times. And <laughs> I thought I'd at least hit double digits at uh-huh. a certain point, but I mean um you 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 um pretty early in the book you have one of the you also have it in the dust jacket. The Soderbergh quote is one of the like defining. quotes of it it's uh i don't understand how they're not still shooting and i don't understand how hundreds of people are dead from that movie like
1: it's truly the quote right you know he gave that quote i think he was talking to the hollywood reporter a few years ago he was talking about how he keeps studying fury road when he makes uh an action sequence just to kind of like get the vocabulary of the thing understand it understand cutting it because you know he shoots and cuts his own movies uh and the film is a master class but but it's it, it's made at such a high level that you could watch it a million times eight times or more i've certainly watched it a million times and you'll notice different things because there's so much going on you know the frame is so full the ideas are so fulsome um so yeah it's 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 full of that, and definitely, I think that Soderbergh quote, you know, codified something that a lot of people felt about Fury Road. If I had, if I had gotten that Soderbergh quote myself, that could have easily been uh, the title of the book.
0: Would what, uh, what was your first screening? I assume it was a press screening, right?
1: It was. It was. Um, well, so my first exposure to any footage of it was at the Comic Con first uh footage presentation which i do describe near the end of the book um mm-hmm. and it was a pretty major moment because you know for as much of a um maverick tours as, as george miller was and how fantastic the original franchise was you know he hadn't made a live action film in forever uh he was getting up there in years there had been a lot of bad buzz so you know the and even the even the part of the um uh, the, com- the Comic-Con Warner Brothers presentation that um, Fury Road was placed into, it wasn't like the marquee attraction. You know, people were uh, sitting in Hall H to wait for uh, Avengers or whatever else was coming later down that pike. Um, but when they started showing footage, it was an incredible, holy shit moment, especially because you're watching a lot of like subpar Action, you know, spectacle uh, that weekend. And this was just so above and beyond, and so different, and so unique. Um, so from then on, it was completely on my radar, um, even more so. And I saw the film for the first time, I want to say, a few weeks before it came out. I believe it was the very first press screening. Um, Edgar Wright moderated the QA with George after, and then there was a little uh, drinks thing with George. Um, And I, you know, I truly remember my jaw dropping, like literally, I think it's the only time my jaw is literally dropped. It just hung out of my mouth like, holy shit, this is beyond, you know? What was
0: your expectation going into the press screening?
1: Well, I... After after Comic-Con, I guess. Expectations were raised by the Comic-Con footage and that first teaser trailer, which is really incredible. Um, So they were high. Honestly, okay. my, my expectations had gone from wait and see to high. Um, and I just, and it just met those expectations and exceeded them. You know, as soon as I saw the Doof Warrior in his red onesie with the guitar shooting Fire, I think that is when my jaw dropped because not only is that incredible um, and metal as fuck, but it's an indication of how far they were willing to push it. You know, I saw, uh, Dr. Strange two, uh, last night and you know, that movie is beholden to a lot of like what all the Marvel movies have to be beholden to, but in its most successful moments, it just like goes for broke in that way that Sam Raimi does. Like it rides the line between ridiculous and giddy. Um, and sometimes you got to ride that line. Sometimes you got to dare to, uh, Because so many action movies or studio movies period are shot sort of indifferently and boringly and uh, are assembled in a computer and uh, are made by, you know, Sundance graduates who come on board an already existing enterprise that is largely uh, handled by second unit directors and and previous people, you know, Mm. so you you don't get that auteur stamp uh, on action. In the way that you used to, you know, when you had a lot of really incredible men uh, and women who were making stuff that felt, you know, like only they could do it. Um, So, yeah, I just uh, there wasn't a single thing about that movie that didn't continue to blow my mind and it ends so well. And I just, yeah, I thought it was so, so incredible. Um, I I walked out of it practically shell-shocked. Went and had a drink, talked to George, and schemed until I could watch it again. Honestly,
0: I think you mentioned in the book that by the time it was pre- it was press screening that the reputation was starting to spread that how good it was. And I remember when I saw it, I saw it on I can't remember if I saw it opening night or saw it the Saturday. I saw it on three D, and it was an LA crowd, but we all knew it was going to be a masterpiece, and so. You went in with not even those high expectations. You were just more like, I think this movie's going to confirm it. Or we're, we're in it for something. And I remember it was after the dust storm, that fade to black so at the end good. of the dust storm. Yeah. Oof. Everyone, like, there was this moment of silence and someone at the front just let out a little, woo, like that. <laughs> and the whole crowd started laughing real hard because we were all feeling that.
1: That's the moment where Bong Jun ho says that he cried while watching it for the first time. <laughs> um. Yeah. uh, You know, it's an interesting thing because uh, it was screening for press a few weeks before it came out and they were gaga for it, but hemmed in because it was premiering at Cannes and no reactions could be published until Cannes. And the Cannes premiere was mere days, same week, I think probably like the Monday or Tuesday of the movie coming out on a Friday. So it didn't have the luxury of like weeks of people saying this is maybe the best action movie ever made or up there, Um, you know, but it had a lot of people clearly chomping in the bit to say something about it. Um, So I think that buzz was getting through, although I do wonder if it weren't hemmed in by that can embargo, if it might have opened a little bit better, you know, Mm. if if people might have gotten behind it a a little earlier.
0: Mm i was um being road warrior being such a big movie for me i remember i i don't remember i think it's it's on the blu-ray right now but it opens with this leonard malton introduction road warrior does and he talks about i think this is in that introduction but he talks about how road warriors last um car chase broke stagecoach's record by his estimation as the longest action scene at the time and then i think a few years later one of like the the, one of the Transformers movies that was made during the writer's strike had a 45-minute action scene. And, you know, it's an unwatchable, who cares? But, you know, the, when Fury Road was first talked about back in, um I guess the first announcement was 98 would have been, if, if it was going to be Mel Gibson or not. Like they've, they've said from the beginning, this is movie is going to be one straight car chase. So I just knew from the beginning that at least... It's George Miller making a movie that's a car chase. He's going to make a narrative out of an entire car chase. Like that alone was, I just couldn't wait for that.
1: Which is incredible. But then also the reason that he's such a master and the reason why Margaret Sixel is so fantastic Mm. as an editor is because it's not just a car chase. There are peaks and valleys and there have to be them. You know, there are quiet parts. There are slower parts. There are parts of consideration. Um, and the action varies, you know, you go from a big car chase to now there's a fist fight to now there's a pursuit to now there's this or that, um, that has to happen. You know, also credit to Tom Holkenborg, uh, Junkie XL for knowing how to make the score sound like it's propelling you forward and not repetitive. You know, it, it takes a really high level, uh, action director To be able to make a film like that where the idea of it's just one car chase doesn't become numbing
0: well and and the book's really good at talking about how all the endless years of reworking and pre-production and um, leads to subtext coming out in ways that you weren't expecting um real real briefly when you talk to george miller did he ever mention a book Called the Parades Gone By by Kevin Brownlow.
1: No, not that I'm aware.
0: Okay, I heard I saw this in an interview from him where he said it was one of his favorite books. It's a history of a, a a silent film, and he said it was a very influential book on him. But uh-huh. for him, I mean, but he did uh, about talk about hard. silent
1: films a lot. Um, you know, silent films are uh, an incredible uh, inspiration to him. Even when he would, you know, sneak into. Uh, the the movie theater in his hometown, sometimes he would be under the floorboards. And so he would hear the film divorced of whatever was on screen. So his uh, the way that he unites um, sound and vision is unique. Uh, I think he's grown up thinking about them, you know, whether they were silent films or whether it was, you know, just the audio track of a film. He thinks very much about how that alone could tell a story uh you know and and it can like you could watch fury road you know over somebody's shoulder on an airplane as i have done and it's still incredibly (laughs) gripping even though you don't hear any of the sound and any of the music it just works visually in
0: these movies, his, or his Mad Max movies in particular, some of them really have a low, low word count for dialogue, too. So, I mean, very they, much so. Although
1: Furiosa is a lot more wordy, so I'm curious to see it.
0: Do you? So, wait, have you? Okay, there's so much in, about Furiosa in this book that, like, I guess just because of how, how it's expanded and it was, you know, it was really supposed to be an anime and now it's mm-hmm. his next Mad Max movie, basically. Like, did you read the script? I mean, they, you mentioned in the book that, like, they used some of the script as sides when they're auditioning actors
1: yeah uh exactly like you said because fury road is not a wordy movie and the characters don't speak all that much to audition people instead of using anything from fury road they used a climactic sequence between um furiosa and uh dementus who's the villain in furiosa um chris hemsworth that's who chris hemsworth will be playing okay Uh, you know, they didn't know that at all. The uh, parts were just marked F and D. um, And they were told just here, there's, we're not giving you much context, except that, uh, you know, one of these characters has wronged the other and now the tables are turned. So go ahead and play them however you want to play them and uh, play them free of gender. Uh, We'll flip the parts at some point. So you know, you would have Jeremy Renner and Zoe Kravitz reading, uh, and maybe she'd be reading Furiosa without realizing it, and him Dementis, and then they would flip. But they didn't know, it was just F and D. It was just stripped down to a fundamental idea. Um, And you know, that's an interesting part of their auditions is that in some ways they were incredibly elaborate. Uh, They would take hours in some cases. They would do all sorts of acting exercises. Sometimes the actors would tell stories from their own lives. And then sometimes they would do really stripped down behavior. Uh, He really wanted to get a sense of, you know, what is the elemental thing that this actor is going to bring to the table? But then also, can I work with them? Are they going to roll with these punches? Are they going to be amenable to like really eccentric ways of working and acting? Because that's how it's going to be. One
0: of the funnier things you mentioned in the book is that one of the auditions, they had to read uh, scenes from network monty python and the holy grail when harry met sally or aaron Brockovich, which is so acting classic yeah is
1: for, class. for for the taped auditions to even get in the room with with george and everybody else you were handed those sides um yeah five scenes from completely random well feeling random movies you can maybe detect some sorts of like uh simpatico mm. themes if you really look okay. at it um but he wanted to get an idea of sense of humor he wanted to yeah he just wanted to get an idea of who these people are you know uh in some cases like the five wives there were there were minor assigned characteristics to them but you know part of why casting went on so long is he wanted to be inspired by just the people he met uh what can they bring to the role who are they what are they what are they rooted in cuz they're going to be you know just sort of sitting there in the back of a truck or what have you and they need to be able to radiate something because they're not always going to get to say anything. Um, So those are the sort of tricky considerations. Uh, and, And so, you know, because of those tricky considerations, they came up with really eccentric processes to audition people.
0: One of the cooler things is that he, uh, that supposedly paid off is him auditioning camera operators.
1: Yeah, I mean I haven't heard of them doing this on any other production. Mm-hmm. You know usually you would come in if you're a camera operator and you would just you know maybe have a meeting with the director or, or, or the cinematographer um, or what have you or maybe they'd you know already be familiar with you from your resume. But on this one they they had the camera operators audition practically like they were actors they set up a sound stage situation in fox uh at fox studios and built the war rig uh filled the soundstage with sand and huge fans made it super noisy cast uh you know uh, these extras as sort of like stand-ins for furiosa and max and the wives And the camera operator had to grab shots and have George on a walkie-talkie and translate what George was saying, uh, what kind of shots he was saying to get. Um, And based on that, they would decide not only who's, you know, capable of following George's orders, but who can work in that kind of pressure. Because at that point, George was going to probably be directing from kind of like a pod and didn't know, you know, how much he would, be like literally right there with the actors and then also the cars are driving the cars were actually driving so much of the time and the only real emissary from the crew that would be there with those actors was the camera operator so you need somebody who's going to be able to a effectively translate george's wishes uh remotely and be you know mesh well and be a a, a good enough personality that uh those actors uh are okay with uh with you know the camera operator um but yeah totally fascinating i i I truly have not heard of any other situation where crew members were auditioned like that and that is a thing you do when you have an eccentric powerful director who also is willing to spend
0: I was reading that and thinking 1976 Coppola's got to be jealous of how effective that is. <laughs> well, you
1: know, it, it, it came up quite often, uh, the comparisons to Apocalypse Now. Um, and it's a funny thing because, you know, for as arduous and as crazy as this set experience was, I, I would say a huge chunk of people that I talked to consider it like the best experience of their lives. They would go back in a heartbeat and do it again. It was so creatively fulfilling. You know, those are mostly crew members. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, an incredible experience like no other that was not shot, you know, mostly on a soundstage in front of a green screen, but was a real lived experience where everyone was so committed to the idea and had to be and so many uh, encouragements were made so that the lives and the ideas and the themes of the characters would bleed into the people making it, uh, then how can you not look back on it and be like, wow, holy shit. But then, you know, there's a lot of other people who think that it was so arduous, it's, it's hard for them to even watch the movie, you know? Charlize uh, had watched the movie initially uh, at the premiere, and and George had screened it for her earlier. But I remember um, while I was writing the book she did a charity screening of it in summer 2020 and she said it was going to be the first time that she had watched it since 2015. You know it's it's a tricky thing because unavoidably she's going to remember you know some of the things that were really difficult about making it. Um, but I do hope that for the reader you know you're encouraged. I mean like you said People are encouraged to watch the movie again after they finish it. Very much, And certainly you're going to know more than you did going in about how it was made. But the movie is just so damn good and involving and absorbing that it doesn't become this, you know, autopsied uh, animal on a slab that doesn't move anymore because you have, you know, carved it open and investigated every centimeter of it. It's a still uh, as alive as ever after reading the book. Or at least it felt that way to me when I saw it on the big screen again after I wrote it. I, I You know, the Alma Draft House had a and a with me uh, after they screened it. And I just got absorbed watching it on the movie screen again, even though, you know, I'd already seen it countless times uh, before that point and, written, and literally written the book on it
0: you literally wrote the book on it. Um one of the things I really liked about the book, I thought it illustrated better than anything else was why particularly George Miller's storyboarded style of shooting was so hard on the actors cuz you hear the conditions and you're like, yeah, that's hard. And then you hear oh, it was a long period of time, so they might have tensions might have rose, but not being able to play out a scene, or just say shooting for three seconds, saying "I got your hand movement," we're cut. We got it. We just, we it was a quick shot. I just needed that alone. That the book really clarifies exactly why that was so frustrating to some of the actors.
1: Yeah, these were microsecond shots. It was mostly shot in sequence, which is crazy. That you know, so crazy. It wasn't just like let's get every shot of Furiosa, uh, like putting her hand on this jang wheel that we'll need for the whole movie. He would come back, you know two months later and be like, now we need another one three weeks later. Now we need another one, like just depending on where they were in the story at that point, um, you know, a very wild experience, uh, probably contributes somewhat to that degree of unstoppable forward momentum that it was essentially shot, um, the same way, you know, they're always heading towards that destination and they can't double back. Um, uh, well, you know, until the very end, which, uh, as you'll know, if you read <laughs> yeah. the book, they ultimately have to do uh, in a production way as well. Um, but yes, it, t- to have it be shot in sequence, insane, wild.
0: <laughs> you have that quote from Edgar Wright in there where he's like, uh, he heard, you know, he heard the buzz, the movie's in trouble. And then we see the movie, you're like, yeah, and some days they only shot 10 seconds. And he's like, yeah, and you see the movie, and you're like, yeah, It there's this really cool story I always love from... Um, when Orson Welles was uh doing well, A Touch of Evil and it was his first day and it was his first studio movie in forever and they, there was a studio spy supposedly there that was like reporting back and they got to the end of the day and they're just like, he hasn't shot anything. He hasn't shot anything yet. He hasn't shot anything yet. And then he does I don't know if it was the opening take or one of the, the, it's, the middle, it's the middle shot, I think. That really long shot in the middle where uh, the guy's just like, he hasn't shot anything yet. He hasn't shot anything yet. And then suddenly he's like, he just shot 14 pages worth
1: and to be fair, 10 seconds of Fury Road can sometimes yeah. comprise quite a bit
0: you, you do you do go obviously you, the book's pretty real, it's pretty chronological except for the op, the opening hook in the intro. Um, the 2003 version, the Mel Gibson version, I, I mean I feel like the book kind of uh, even though it's through other people, do you, you get the same sense they did that this would have been maybe not had the same impact if Mel Gibson was in it and it was released 15 years earlier.
1: It would have been a very different impact. I mean, visually, what they were able to accomplish in the version that they shot simply would not have been possible in 2003. I mean, they would have come up with other ways to try to get what they wanted. But, you know, things like the edge arm camera, where the camera is like, you know, on a big arm, essentially, and uh, can be very fluidly controlled. That, That innovation is responsible for... So much of what we see in Fury Road and how close they're able to get to those cars that are driving and crashing for real. So things like that, a lot of the really incredible CGI work that feels almost invisible, but, you know, is extensive, um, wasn't possible till then. Um, but, you know, there's other ways that it could have resonated. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a before Mel Gibson became a, as toxic as he is now. The idea of him returning to that role uh, you know, years later as a sort of more grizzled version, we're seeing that now with a lot of legacy sequels, right? Like, go right. back to the thing that made you a star and see what you can mine from it. Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, uh, Tom Cruise with, Maverick, uh, with Top Gun Maverick. So it could have been really interesting to see Mel Gibson kind of be one of the first people to do it. And it really was, Fury Road really was conceived as like the capper, you know, that he would start this movie, you know, having uh, like all the years since we had seen the Mad Max character in Thunderdome, he'd been out there in the desert going steadily crazier and crazier. So the idea of him engaging with these women um, was meant to be like, he realizes there's still a reason to embrace civilization and to care about people, you know? And I think certainly you get that impression from, Fury Road, as it is now, but it's not lean. It's not drawing on history necessarily. You're just, you just, you know, you understand it about the character, but there isn't that pop cultural weight to it. And in fact, I think that you know a common complaint that you hear is, is especially from men, is how passive, right, "quote unquote" passive Max is. That it's the women's picture and that he doesn't do much until the second half of the movie which was very much by design and very much the purpose of, you know, the Mel Gibson incarnation where, you know, this is a guy who'd been beaten down by being in the wasteland for like over a decade um, and doesn't want to fight for the women, just wants to get out of there, you know, just wants to avoid everything. Uh, So it would have maybe been pretty powerful to see him shirk that responsibility and then rise to it uh, near the end, you know? So it's hard to say, um, but but yeah, certainly all the technical aspects uh, of the movie that that still seem so incredible now just simply were not possible in 2003.
0: There's a, you have the anecdote that um, Edgar Wright relays uh, secondhand where he says he was talking to Tarantino about the movie and yeah. Tarantino was refusing to see it <laughs> and they got into a heated conversation over it. And then later uh, he asked uh, Tarantino if he saw it and he's like, yo, yeah, it's a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but the reason
0: he would... Sorry, I, I messed that story up. The reason he wouldn't see it was because... It's
1: because Mel Gibson wasn't in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were people who felt very strongly about it. There were Australians who were mad that he wasn't replaced with another Australian. And they tried. You know, he wanted... George Miller wanted uh, Heath Ledger, uh, who passed away. Um, and then he just, you know, threw the door wide open and, and was willing to meet with everybody from around the world. It's actually kind of interesting because... So much of the voices that we hear are done, you know, in ADR because of how obviously noisy it was on that set. So you've got Tom's natural British accent. You've got him aiming at something a little bit more neutral and rumbly, but also Tom Hardy-ish in that it's a grumble and you have to decipher it. And then you've got, honestly, a lot of the ADR that was done without him. Because he wasn't willing to put in, you know, the time and hours that Charlize did to go there and loop for a long time, so you have kind of a mishmash of a Max voice. I don't know if if he himself feels as Australian as he did once upon a time, but certainly the Gopher broke spirit of the movie is incredibly Australian.
0: Isn't that, but well, wasn't that part of the classic? Like, I mean, the first Mad Max was redubbed for America.
1: Yes, it was. And uh, to the point where Hugh Keysburn, uh, who plays the villain in the first Mad Max and came back to be Toe Cutter, or, uh, who plays Toe Cutter in the first Mad Max first and one. came back to play Morton Joe, the villain in Fury Road. Uh, he didn't speak to George for a long time because he felt betrayed by the dubbing in the American version really? of the first Mad Max. And it really wasn't until they George wanted to work with him again uh so he could play Martian Manhunter in Justice League when George was going to direct Justice League that the two of them kind of like buried that hatchet and came back together and and you know it's a fortunate thing they did because that meant that he could play Immortan Joe in, in Fury Road and he's terrific in it
0: there's this really charming i don't remember if it is right when fury road came out but the draft house had one of their uh, interstitials of the two of them together yeah. george miller starts directing him yeah <laughs> it's, really, it's really it's really cute Hardy mask acting like that was I mean you you know he he, in the delay between when they didn't shoot the movie I guess 2010 or 2011 or later I guess he then films Bane and then he does Fury Road and then I guess he does Dunkirk after that like he's been in multiple movies where his his lower half is covered and he's acting with his eyes.
1: Well Tom Hardy's relationship to his entire physical being is something that you could probably write a book on. You know, this is somebody who came up at like age 19 because he won like a little modeling contest. And, you know, certainly uh, with his uh, beautiful face and those pillowy lips, you're like, okay, yeah, you are kind of a model. But, you know, he was like a skinny, posh boy. um, It still
0: blows my mind. This is the villain of Star Trek Nemesis.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think he was trying to get like posh, uh British you know uh villain shit those sorts of roles and just nothing was clicking really nothing completely clicked for him until he physically transformed himself for Bronson the Nicholas Winding Refn film uh you know where he put on so much weight and so much muscle and that helped redefine who he was he suddenly became this very sort of like agro masculine but can act British thespian. And, you know, that's the sort of person that I think casting directors are often on the look for, um, because American actors just don't have, I mean, we import so many of our, uh, leading men from, uh, the UK and Australia, um, for whatever reason, we're not growing Tom Hardy types here. Um, uh, so he, he became a much more marketable presence, uh, after he had that transformation. Um, Not being cast as sort of like the romantic lead or the rich boy anymore, but like, you know, the action hero, the thug, the bad guy, what have you. And I think Chris Nolan really sparked to him, even though I think what he does in Inception, I would have liked to see him do a little bit more of that because I like Tom Hardy in a suit with a wink, you know. Uh, But I think he really leaned into the physicality of it, you know, and, and chose roles that exploited it. From, uh, you know, playing Bane in Dark Knight Rises to Lawless to Revenant to Venom. Like, you know, he really, he likes physical roles. He likes training uh, with his trainers, with his ex-SAS buddies. Uh, That's the path that he's chosen. And that's, you know, that is, uh, to be fair, what has made him a marketable A-list star.
0: Well, he's got that really, as you mentioned, the beefiness and the beefing up, but I think you mentioned in the book that he's also got the like low-level feminine quality constantly on the under undercurrent with, with him. And it's always this like physical Brando thing, and he's always trying to do something, but there's so many dimensions to it. I, well, I, I like your point about Inception, though. Like, you know,
1: the, the, that whole long-winded uh, analysis was sparked by the mask thing because I think when you're making Tom like this really – physical, brutish, thuggish dude. That's why you cover up his lips because they're so Angelina Jolie in her prime. Wow. <laughs> uh, that, you know, it 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 either, it, it spikes the illusion. I, I find provocatively so. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, one of the things that makes him intriguing as an actor is that dichotomy. And And certainly if you talk to him, there is that interesting push and pull between, you know, the sort of like, really brutish guy that he kind of likes to appear as, but then also he himself will spike that and be like, but I'm just like a pussy cat and I'm afraid of heights and blah, blah, blah. Uh,
0: I guess we should talk about the big uh, chapter that was excerpted in advance of the book about the uh, Hardy, Charlie's there on fight. Um, I, the, the, the thing that you mentioned that I'd, I'd never heard before was the Denise DeNovi, uh, her bringing in a producer to protect her interests.
1: Yeah. Uh, Charlize and Tom did not get along for the entirety of the situation. And, you know, it came to a head one day where he was hours late to set, not a new occurrence, but she drew a line in the sand wouldn't leave the war rig where, you know, she sat in costume and makeup waiting for him for hours. Um, And when he got there, uh, you know, she jumped out and they got in each other's faces and had words and she felt physically threatened by him and asked uh, Warner Brothers to send down Denise DeNovi. Uh, You know, she's a veteran producer um, who Charlize felt could mediate for her, help protect her. Add some, you know, female energy to the mix, be a high ranking woman um, in a set that was, you know, mostly dominated by men. Um, did, did you get the quote?
0: One of my, the, the moments that I was like, uh, where she just, she, she, there's an ellipsis in the middle of a quote and she just says, oh, fuck it, I'm going to say oh, yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, she's complaining a man, the problem there was, uh, it was a producer, I guess she was going to get, she was talking about Doug Mitchell yeah. saying it's a man forgiving another man's behavior, bad behavior.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was, yeah, she said that to me. Um, And God bless Charlize. Uh, Charlize is a very candid person. Actually, she really thrives on you asking her tough questions. She would much rather that be the sort of conversation than small talk. And, um, you know, what's it like to work with, uh, uh, you know, so-and-so or... Isn't he dreaming? What "What are you doing for uh, Christmas or whatever? She wants she wants legit conversation. Um, you know, she'd rather talk to you for an hour about tricky things than five minutes about non-essential things. So, and I've, you know, I'd, I'd interviewed her a couple times before, uh, the book. Um, in fact, that's how I kind of had the confidence to know that the initial times oral history could be done because you have to land a big fish to get everybody else to sign on. And I, Okay. I had a sense that I could get Charlize to do it. We had a good rapport from the other interviews and she was the first. And then like dominoes, everybody else. Um, but I do give her a lot of credit because, you know, a being like, I'll do even more interviews with this. Cause I think all told we did like four interviews. Um, and then to talk about things like the Tom Hardy fight or, you know, not feeling protected or, uh, or, or or, things like that, you know, uh, her beef with, with the producer. Because um, she knew that it would present a whole new round of headlines about it. Um, you know, this is a, the feud between them has been covered before, but it hasn't been spoken about in the depth that it has. She's not eager for a whole new round of headlines. Trust and believe that she is not seeking that out, but she also will not shirk from difficult questions about it. You know, and I I give her a lot of credit for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because, like, when you see you're in a movie that good, it's a little easier to say, like, I I should have trusted the process a little more. But,
1: you know, she's very reflective about it in every possible way. Um, She has issues with how uh, some people behaved and she wants to look back on it and think, well, what could I have done better as well? That's just the way that she works. I think also, you know, it, it was a revelation to both of them and the, uh, honestly the rest of the cast and also some of the people who worked on the movie when the film did come out and was incredible, a masterpiece, a, a crown jewel of so many of these people's careers. You want to be able to go back and say, don't be stressed out. It's not going to be a disaster. This is going to be, you know, one of the most pivotal films you'll ever make. Um, But they didn't know. And, And that was part of the anxiety at the time, not just because it was so arduous to make the film, but because they thought it could be, you know, maybe it was getting away from George. Who could say? What if this turns out to be a huge bomb? It's on them. You know, this wasn't, this came at a time when Tom was about to be a big star. So he wanted to protect that. This came at a time for Charlize where she hadn't worked a little while. And would that be a nail in her coffin?
0: I loved I'd never heard this before either that uh, he spent most of the movie with um, he was thinking that Max was a former cop or some former former cop. So he had iPod earbuds in the entire time and they had to paint them out.
1: Yeah. um, Tom comes up with lots of ideas. Um, You know, certainly uh, the first Mad Max film gives you sort of an origin story for Max. But the fact that it was a reboot. And has become kind of like a legend told, allowed for a little bit of room to kind of, you know, remix. And he ran with that and suggested things. And yeah, he, so he suggested he wanted this sort of um, iPhone earphone or headphone uh, in his ear that was broken, but that through which he could hear like the voices um, of his old colleagues or whatever sorts of voices you know, just sort of indicate Max's craziness. Um, And I think a lot of people on set were like, is George going to tell him not to do that? But didn't. And in fact, sometimes I think you can find some stills that were initially released by Warner Brothers where he still has the headphone or the earphone, Um, but it was digitally painted out after. Maybe that was, you know, when it's Tom Hardy on set, you got to pick your battles the one of the people
0: talking about that story is possibly my favorite person in the toast?
1: book. toast 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 is the best I,
0: his whole story is just so big fan um his first experience with george miller being at the airport where they both get pulled aside and he has to see george miller pulling out his underwear for security yeah then,
1: so so for your for your listeners who don't know or okay, haven't yeah, read the yeah. book yet toast is this yeah. visual effects data wrangler um And he was inspired to even go into working in Hollywood because he was so obsessed with Mad Max growing up. Um, And, you know, whenever anyone asked him, well, why are you doing this for a living? He would say, in case they make another Mad Max, I got to be there. And he said it to enough people that he finally said it to the right person at the right time, uh, PJ Voten, who's the... uh, you know, first assistant AD on Fury Road, a very loyal George Miller lieutenant um, who was like, well, buddy, (laughs) guess what? We might be making another Mad Max. And when we do, we'll call you up. And so, you know, he's one of the people that I tracked down when I was just casting the widest net possible, trying to find everyone who worked on this movie and is one of those things where you strike gold because his experience of making it was so suffused with a love and awe of what was being done. Um, And so it provided a really unique perspective because one of the missions I had with this was to simply not just tell the story of George Miller, Tom Hardy, and Charlize Theron. Uh, And I think part of the reason it's an oral history is because it gives you a more accurate feeling of just like what goes into a movie, you know? Yes, those are the, above the line names, but there are hundreds, thousands of people who work on a film and who are on set at any given moment or in post-production, you want to give them their due. It shouldn't just be a book where you get quotes from the famous names and everything else gets paraphrased. Uh, And so, you know, especially because everyone had incredible stories and and because of that getting to know Toast, I learned about his first shoot day, the, the first shoot day of the movie. Was a really incredible uh, experience that ends with a big twist, um, and I thought to myself, "This is the perspective through which I want to tell the first day of shooting story, not through George's perspective or, or somebody else's, but through Toast. I mean, you get everybody else's perspectives, but whenever I could, I really wanted to open up the playing field, uh, you know, to to give the perspective on on, on maybe unheralded crew members whose stories are just as fascinating uh, and whose personalities are, are just as wonderful as the people you do know going in.
0: I looked up toasts a filmography and he's worked on some cool movies. So it's, it's, it's his, his enthusiasm for this in particular, like it's, it's all of us who've worked on, who are lucky enough to worked on a movie that like feels good or, or someone that we respected back in, like that was a hero of ours and the hero turns out to be worth the worship. Like, very few of us have those stories, and this, like, like continuing the hook, uh, way of t- not telling the story. His last story, there, his his, ra- his last day on set with George Miller, yeah, that's another amazing story,
1: yeah. And what, and what George writes on his storyboard, uh, packet. but George and
0: George's reaction afterwards,
1: yeah, to uh, yeah. And Toast is a really wonderful, earnest guy, um, and you know, so, as are many of the people that I spoke to, uh, it's an interesting thing you would have thought maybe some people would be a little more clammed up, but the, the experience of making this movie and, and the time that has passed since it, people wanted to talk. I think people have been carrying around these stories for a long time, certainly probably telling friends and family. Um, mm-hmm. I did think like, okay, well, maybe the crew members are going to be the only ones who tell the whole story, but everyone was so candid, you know, uh, Charlize, Zoe Kravitz, um, Uh, George, to some extent, even, Um, you know, talked about things that he'd never talked about. Um, And, you know, and yeah, like I said, for a lot of people, this was really profound experience. Uh, And certainly for Toast, it was.
0: Another crew member I liked stories from in the book was uh, Guy Norris, the stunt coordinator. Who I guess he's the guy that did the flip in Broad Warrior, where he almost died. Right. (laughs) And his sons come on to the movie.
1: Yeah, and play uh, war boys, war pups, because they, they were they were teenagers at the time. Um, yeah, stunt, uh, stunt performance runs in that family. And like you said, Guy uh, worked on Road Warrior, got really mangled in A Stunt Gone Wrong, but still had to return to that movie in production on his crutches and shoot some more stunts because he was just so good at it. He came up in the day where, you learned at the feet of incredibly wild, dangerous people uh, how to do it. And so that's one of those things where, you know, you would like to think that Fury Road will be influential and and that action movies will follow in its footsteps, but they won't. They haven't. We've already seen it. There's not a lot of room for them first. You know, the the principal ways that you get to make a big action movie now are part of... uh, you know, uh, a pre-existing franchise uh, that are usually shepherded by executives, um, not by auteurs. So there's that, but then there's also the fact that George and Guy are of the age and have the legit bona fides because of their age um, where they remember doing all this for real. They, they have the expertise to know what can be done and what can't. You know, what can be done in a computer and what can actually be pulled off and be more powerful because of it if it's done for real. Um, And that is simply a dying breed, Um, and in 30 years, those people won't exist. Um, And you won't have the people who have the practical know-how of how to execute those sequences even if you wanted to.
0: You do have a quote, uh, I think it's from Drew McWeeny in the book, talking about, uh, to, to be a little hopeful here, uh, that some nine-year-old's going to see Fury Road and be like, that's the movie that made me want to make movies and make the next Fury Road from that. So whether I, they have stunt expertise.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, listen, um, if, if, if Fury Road was the movie that I had watched at age 10, Uh, I would have been, you know, just as obsessed with it and it would have been just as formative as it even was when I was an adult watching it. Um, I just just bemoan the fact that it feels like there are few ways for people to really deliver on what Fury Road gave us, that it still Mm -hmm. stands alone, that it feels like the only thing that could possibly come along that's even somewhat similar to Fury Road is Furiosa, you know, the, the prequel that they're going to shoot. Like, uh, you wish there was more room, but where is that room? Is it in the MCU? Is it, you know, on some Netflix uh, forgettable action film? Where's it going to happen?
0: Do you know when they're shooting Furiosa?
1: Well, it's gotten pushed back several times, which is the nature of a George Miller blockbuster. Uh, but the intention is this summer.
0: Okay. I mean, just... I... You wonder if he's going to get the same um, scrutiny or pushback. I way.
1: yeah, I mean, you know, you would hope that they would have the wind at their backs now. They have proven themselves. If there are moments of like, oh, I don't know, is this going to work? He has no better proof of concept than Fury Road. Um, but it is George Miller. It's the nature of the beast that if George Miller is making a massive studio blockbuster, it's never going to be easy. There's always going to be You know, interference, there's always going to be envelope pushing and there's going to be delays and there's going to be five million other things that get in the way. Um, You know, uh, there's real active gotcha that almost prevented them from making Fury Road, period, and certainly delayed it for, you know, a decade and a half. Um, But they persevered. Uh, I just hope that it can get made before, you know, while George can still make it
0: um let, let's come to the jeff robinoff part of the book where he comes uh to to uh the set and says that so so they shoot the desert stuff in nambia but they want bookends of i guess morton joe's fortress is supposed to be in a studio and robinoff comes and says basically he's, he tells him to cut the opening and the, and, the, and the closing and figure out a way of shooting around it so wait was the movie just over budget or schedule by that point
1: So let me back up. Jeff Robinoff was the then head of of the Warner Brothers film division. Sorry, And um, he was engaged in this uh, sort of battle royale bake-off with other people, other execs at the studio. There were three of them, including Jeff, to basically run Warner Brothers, period. So there was a lot of scrutiny on his film slate and there'd been really expensive movies like Great Gatsby and Man of Steel. Uh, And there was this you know, Mad Max movie that was shooting that everyone in Hollywood was like, "Uh Oh, is that a disaster? We've been hearing stories. Um And, you know, different people will say different things. You know, there will be people who say we weren't behind. We weren't over budget, but then you'll talk to other people who are like, yeah, we were, but then also like, duh, if you're going to make this movie, <laughs> you have to expect a little bit of that, you know, especially duh. with George. Um, You know, he's a, He's, it takes him a long time, and the movie took a long time. And honestly, Tom took a long time. He wouldn't show up you know, on time, which lent, adds even more time to these shoots. Um, and then the fighting with Charlize. So yeah, Jeff Robinoff flew to set in Namibia. And they still had several weeks to shoot in Namibia, and then they were going to go to cape town to shoot interiors which was basically the citadel scenes so like i said it was shot in sequence but it was shot in sequence from the moment the war rig leaves the citadel on and what they needed to still shoot were all of the scenes of you know max and the citadel in the first act the Immorton setting up everything about the citadel and then obviously the return to the citadel uh where they uh reveal the Immorton's dead body and ascend into the Citadel to rule it themselves. All of that still had to be shot. The sets were being built in Cape Town and were torn down because of Jeff Robinoff's basically his ultimatum, saying you can either shoot the third act chase sequence or you can shoot the Citadel scenes, but you can't do both. So they decided to do the third act and to try to figure something out. There were ideas of like, well, maybe. We'll use narration or something to like set up all the you know first twelve minute stuff that we can't get to, uh, but it just wasn't the same. Like it, you know, obviously you needed to set up the stakes for this world, but you also needed to set up the stakes of the villain, and that's that is that is what the first twelve minutes of the movie do. What is the world? What is the place that they're going to return to? How fearsome is the villain? What has he got going on? What is he hoarding? You just want to be able to do that in like an opening credits scroll. Um, You know, so this is one of the few times where luck was in their favor because Jeff Robanoff did not get the Warner Brothers job that he wanted and left or was pushed out, depending on who you speak to. And uh, Kevin Sujihara, who did take over and is not in that position anymore after his own scandals, screened Fury Road and said, this doesn't make any sense without the bookends and authorized an additional shoot in Australia for them to all return and shoot those Citadel scenes.
0: I guess uh, they were editing for so long without those bookends. The thing that sticks in my head is you, I, I, I see what you're saying. 12 minutes establishing the Citadel is impossible, but like. One of my, my, my common co host Ted Haycraft, and I always talk about, there's a moment in Road Warrior where, the, the beginning of the movie, it's the montage at the beginning, and it's a 4x3 montage, and there's that moment at the end where it switches to color, it's still in 4x3, and then it fades out, and the sound of the car comes into the surrounds, and both of us are like, cinema, that's cinema, and... Yeah, I, I mean, 12 minutes of of um, not backstory, but like basic first act setup would be really hard to get into that montage. But Miller, but I mean, Fury Road even has a similar, it's only like a few shots, but it has in the, the title credits, like a few old shots of montage in it to like set up the world.
1: Well, and also throughout the movie, there's flashes that Max has. He's haunted, mm. obviously, by things that have happened to him. But a lot of those were added extremely late in the game, like extremely late, even after the additional shoot in Sydney. You know, uh, actors would come in and record a, on a green screen for those visions to kind of uh, uh, flesh out the world, but then also create a little more emphasis on Max, even in his ostensibly more passive moments, to have things going on. So there was it was always a tricky balancing act, even when they did get the Citadel scenes, to you know, keep establishing just enough of the world in these fly by moments.
0: Uh, I'm winding down, but I completely forgot to bring it up when we were talking about, uh, passive max and the, the feminist content. Uh, the, the other illuminating thing is you like Eve Insler of the vagina monologues was a consultant and came in and for how long, like week, two weeks.
1: She did a week long workshop with, uh, the actresses who play the wives, um, where they talked because she not only wrote the Vagina Monologues, but she's an activist who had been working in, you know, uh, Congo and, and uh, a couple other places trying to end sexual slavery and, and giving lectures uh, about what she has seen and witnessed. So she worked with those actresses to sort of, you know, flesh out their ideas of, of what they would have gone through, what they might be feeling if some of them are feeling Stockholm Syndrome as they flee you know, uh, really interesting stuff to deepen their experiences, which Zoe Kravitz says that she needed because when she would feel like, what am I even doing? I'm sitting in this truck for two months and barely speaking. She would draw on what they had experienced that week to ground her in that space and ground her in that character. You know, it's just another indication of like people who are are barely glimpsed on screen or barely speak on screen there was so much thought put into absolutely every aspect of their being you know uh and often the performers were a part of that the war boys all had names that they came up with and had their own workshops uh that were taught by this dramaturge nadia townsend that got them incredibly into character in an agro kind of methody way uh that infected the whole movie because You know, you were out there shooting it for real. You were out there driving these cars for real. And those cars were surrounded by screaming, shrieking war boys uh, in outrageous vehicles who were living it, living it. Like even when it was called cut, they were still living that, you know, zealous uh, um, attitude. So it just was impossible for all those people to not feel like they were in the world of the movie for good and for ill. I, re-
0: I remember the thing that blew me away for the first week after I saw the movie and I was telling everyone, cause I mean saying like the sequel to, Ro- to road warrior is an even better movie and like one of your favorite movies is an even better movie. Like uh, blade runner recently had that issue where you're like, it's it, I can't believe this. But I remember the thing I kept telling friends is just like the, the, the who destroyed the world, uh, line. Mm -hmm. Like I just like they turned a Mad Max movie into a feminist statement, and who destroyed the world was just it it, it just stuck with you for like the Mad. It just stuck with me for a long time afterwards.
1: There, there is so much. I mean, like listen, there are really deep themes running in underneath a you know a deceptively simple premise. Um, Right. Not just these statements about women and how they're treated or controlled. But also uh, resource hoarding by the rich, you know, um, about the disintegration of civilization, um, uh, about the environment. Uh, you know, there's countless times where something happens in the news and we all make jokes about like, OK, get ready for the wasteland. Get ready for Fury Road because, you know, it's well, yeah, and that too, and gas prices and everything, um, you know, it it's very remarkable how much this movie which could have just been the most wafer-thin car chase film uh, with you know incredible stunts but like nothing underneath has actually so much under the hood
0: So the point near the end uh, where Warner Brothers finally got behind everything was a kind of bake-off test screening, where they played it two to, to screens 15 minutes apart, the Warner's cut, and then Miller's cut.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Well, they, they got behind it, but afterwards, and really just like dragged screaming, because yeah, near near to the very end, I mean, this this there was no part of this that was not a challenge that came with a lot of obstacles, and even very late into post-production. You know, before the film came out, uh, they invited George to California and he went to this mall in Alhambra. And when he showed up for the test screening, Warner Brothers revealed to him that they had been working on their own cut, um, their own edit, and that it would be tested opposite George's and that the winner, you know, the one that got the better audience scores would be the ultimate released version and George was George
0: Miller wouldn't have seen this cut at that point too. He hadn't seen was, the cut, cut end.
1: Well, if you ask him, I mean, he's not anxious to say that he's seen it, although uh, a producer who worked on the cut said that George did watch it and did incorporate some of the changes I thought that was according so to cool. him. Um okay, cool. but I I know that, you know, I mean, some of the like sound guys and effects guys knew that it was happening and they were being asked to help and they were like fuck no. And George was pissed pissed when he showed up and was told that he threatened to go public you know it was a uh it would have uh, flouted contractual agreements that they had come to um but i think uh margaret his wife and his editor sort of successfully talked him down and fortunately they won uh because the warner brothers instinct was to cut out everything that was crazy weird off-putting too wild, um, too violent. And that didn't leave you with very much movie, you know, and and what was left it just those those things that feeling like you're on the knife's edge is what makes Fury Road so gripping.
0: Um, I did want to ask, did you have any bit of a chapter or anything about the uh, the uh, black and chrome edition?
1: You know, there was more of that because I do think that the story of um, of how the movie went from, honestly, a fairly desaturated look to one that is really suffused with color is interesting. It just got to the point where when you're bringing the book in for a landing, you have to start mm-hmm. sort of like clearing the runway, so to speak. Right. Um, so, but yeah, but I did speak to people about that. It was an interesting experience because, you know, if you look at behind the scenes shots where they shot in Namibia, it wasn't, you know, beautiful blue and burnt orange. It was uh, a monochrome desert for the most part. And I think because of that, people did think that it would be a somewhat more desaturated film. Uh, Jason Boland, who shot the still photography for the uh, for the film, he would desaturate his own photos because he thought that would be the sort of the look that worked and, and that would be utilized for the movie. And in fact, if you Google Fury Road still, the Warner Brothers to stills don't look anything like the actual movie because they're still desaturated. Uh, So it was deep into post-production that they went a very different way. And, you know, I think George was tired of the sort of desaturated, gritty, apocalyptic vibe and also wanted to, you know, thematically indicate that maybe things could heal. Maybe the world could change uh, by, you know, adding color to it and, and making it really beautiful and distinctive
0: i when i was watching it today i had the, it was it was the same reaction i had in my first viewing where that day for night sequence when they're at the night when they're in the uh, green, is one of the most stylized day for night things i've ever seen
1: it's, it's beautiful and it's outrageous honestly you know there's a sequence or there's a shot i think where uh the girls are lit by this flame and in front, you've got uh, uh, Furios uh, and Max, who are not. Yes,
0: you know the shot I'm thinking And about.
1: just like the way that it's painted, I mean, it's so striking. But if you think about it for even a moment in a realistic way, it falls apart. But good, good. I like when like filmmakers push it. You know, like, who wants bland reality? It's Mad Max Fury Road. Push it. Like, go to the extreme. Be a... F- be ready to almost be embarrassed by how far you push it. That's why that movie works. And that's why, you know, too few filmmakers have like the bones to just like go for it. There's something in the water in Australia. We talked about this a bit too in a lot of my interviews, you know, to have produced people like George or Baz Lerman or PJ Hogan or Jocelyn Morehouse who like are very extreme in their sensibility to let, you know, this crazy comic cartoonish energy sit side by side with something that's more dramatic or tragic or action-oriented. There's just nothing like that sensibility. Uh, Nobody else in any part of the world does it quite like the Australians do.
0: I can't remember the name of it. Have you seen the documentary on Australian cinema that came out, a few, like, I want to say, a decade ago?
1: Uh, I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Um, Last question. Uh, So you interview over over 100 people for this book did you try to get our former treasury secretary steve mnuchin (laughs) Uh,
1: i did um yes who has a very random producing credit on this film i don't think he was a very important day-to-day uh part of fury road but yes i did try to get a hold of him to no avail um just as i did with jeff robanoff uh who i don't Mm. think was eager to talk about uh that experience um yeah, a very random thing where you watch it and you see that name and you're like, buh?
0: <laughs> he has his name on
1: like... But that was his former career. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, his name's on all sorts yeah. of things. Is
0: it Village Road- Roadshow stuff or...
1: Yeah, a lot of Warner Brothers stuff. A lot of uh, superhero stuff. Yeah, random. Oh,
0: okay. Uh, I guess I at Kyle Buchanan. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me, Shane.